Sometimes a lot of value investors will go like flies towards a certain value trap. I like that it's potentially undervalued relative to peers. There's a lot of pessimism about this space overall. Barnes & Noble doesn't look like intrinsically a disaster to me. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment stories from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes successful analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzen. Today we're looking at Barnes & Noble, ticker symbol BKS, to see what the next chapter in its story is. First, some background and a disclosure. Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their investment ideas and analysis. Neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any company discussed, and nothing on here should be taken as investment advice. If you like what we're doing, please leave a review, and subscribe to Behind the Idea on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes and Apple Podcasts. And as a final disclaimer, you can blame all the puns in this episode on Daniel Schwartzman. It's not me. <laughs> Today's topic, bookseller Barnes & Noble has fallen on well-publicized hard times. With a shrinking store base, an arguably failed Nook digital reader business, and a revolving door at the top of the company, there is not much to like, except for a massive 10% dividend yield. Amid the carnage, Seeking Alpha author West Peak Research Association shares a balanced perspective on this potential Amazon casualty. The theme of today's episode, how can you sort fact from fiction in a potential value trap? So, Daniel, what's the story here? Well, Mike, I'm going to pull Catch-22 off the shelf here because it just seems like no matter what Barnes & Noble does, can't really get out of the juggernaut that is online sales and Amazon. The article really just researches everything that you might want to know about Barnes & Nobles at this point. It talks about its retail sales, which have been declining, it has a hard 6% loss in comparable sales in Q2, fiscal year 2018, which is, it's bad and it's attributed to J.K. Rowling not coming out with a new Harry Potter novel or the, the cursed child. Don't want to offend the diehard fans there. Nook sales are also struggling. That was Nook was their e-reader meant to compete with the Kindle. Hasn't really worked out well. That's also declining rapidly year over year. So there's a lot of headwinds here. Revenue is, they're not really diversifying from the retail story and the retail story is not great. They pay a large dividend. Right now it's about, a ten, like you said, a 10% yield. The company is shutting down stores, which is a typical retail story. They're also trying to come up with new concepts, something we've seen before in the space more broadly. And in book selling specifically, it's just a, it's a difficult time. The industry trends are not going in the right direction. And they go over the future of retail, which is a cliche at this point, how difficult that sector is. And at the end, they, they look at it, some potential catalysts in terms of kind of hunkering down, focusing their products on books, innovating the in-store experience. And they come up, they, they run a DCF analysis, and they actually come up with some upside there. They come up with the potential. They rate the company as a hold, but they say, look, if you look at the numbers, there's some opportunity here. And so that's where they leave it. It's not necessarily a, you know, contrarian thesis that books that B 
BKS, Barnes Noble is going to turn around, but here are all the factors that you might want to consider, management and everything else, and they come up with, their numbers actually suggest there's some upside. So that's sort of the, the thesis, I would say, and the start of the story, at least, I guess we'll tell. Yeah, I guess, yeah, now it's our story to tell. You don't have to take our word for it, or you don't have to take West Peak's word, word for it. Okay, so, right, so I think the first thing that we noticed about this article when we were considering it for Behind the Idea was that it focuses on being very comprehensive. It really touches all the bases, and this is something that we see from time to time. A writer is more seemingly prioritizing really addressing all the different factors instead of picking one or two key things that the reader really needs to focus on and making a strong argument based on diving deep into those concepts. So let's talk a little bit about the idea of a research report, which is really balanced, versus a strong argument, which is more pointed and direct. So Daniel, what do you, what do you think about the trade-offs for these two approaches? Not to beat a dead horse, this also seems to be a catch-22 for authors because there's a authors will get criticized either way. If you're if you do a balanced research report, readers will say, "Why don't you have skin in the game?" If you do a more opinionated piece, readers will, especially if it's a short idea, but even if it's a long idea, readers will say, "Oh, I saw the disclosure. That's all I need to see." Or talking his book or whatever else. So, and I guess that sort of encapsulates some of the trade-offs. A research report is good for a few things. It's good because it will, by going through all the boxes and covering all the bases, in theory, if it's a sufficiently comprehensive, it will, it will then serve as a foundation for me to then go where I want to go further. So in this case, I might want to look at what Barnes & Noble's new concept is going to be, or I might want to look at what Indigo, which is one of the competitors that, West Peak refers to. I might want to look at what they're doing or whatever else. It gives me a foundation from which to build my own effort as an investor. So that's one benefit. By starting from the point of research, in theory, you should be able to be more objective, which by not having too much of a prior opinion, you get less stuck in confirmation bias, anchoring, or flawed assumptions that will then doom your final conclusion. So in theory, being able to conduct research will then allow you to make a more objective and, in theory, correct conclusion. And yeah, I think those are the upsides to the research approach. It, it just forces you to really go further and without presuming where you're going to end up. I think the downsides are that sometimes you go further than you need in some directions. For example, in this article, I'm not sure that we needed a few sections on the future of retail. I think it's sort of, for an average Seeking Alpha reader, I would expect that I'm aware of what the story is with retail and just an allusion to it might be enough. The same goes for the book sector. There's a They have a nice table from Ibis World of revenue in the bookstore industry and it's a chart that is only going in one direction since 2004. And I actually enjoy that table, but I don't know 
that it's surprising that the bookstore industry is struggling. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it, and I think it gets the authors stuck where sometimes you'll have statements like, stores are declining, but they're also adding new stores. And like, there's a little bit of the balance sometimes gets confusing without sort of a focal point. So I guess those would be the sort of puts and takes of that approach. I, what do you, you get to see a lot of reports like this. What What is your sort of, take on either West Peak's approach or just the genre in general? I sort of size it up as you, if you do a research report, then yeah, maybe, maybe you seem more objective, but you risk readers saying, what can I do with this? And mm-hmm. if you make a strong pointed argument, then readers are going to say, how do I know that you covered all the bases? So I think I'll fall back on kind of an annoying consultant answer, which is like, it depends on what you're trying to do. So if you're just trying to get oriented to a company and you don't really have any, you just want a sort of starting place that sizes up the business overall and gives some gesture at valuation, but then the reader is going to do their own homework in response to that, then the research report can be really useful. And I found it in this case, I think one of the reasons we're looking at this is because Barnes & Noble is an interesting story, and we wanted a, a jumping-off point to talk about something that's interesting that may be an, an actionable investment opportunity, but also just for us to learn about the business. You might not get that from an article that's just really focused, presumes a lot of knowledge, that's edited down and doesn't have the state of retail in it. So. I think both of us were biased in favor of the strong argumentation, presuming that the reader knows a lot and can do additional research on their own. But I, I don't want to come down super hard on the research report approach because I think it has its place in the world. Maybe not. I think if you went to a portfolio manager with a research report that was very balanced and called something a hold, they would tell you to get out of their office and never come back. Right. Because it's just... In, in the world of investing, you need opportunities and upside and big swings, uh, and a research report doesn't go that. But that doesn't mean it's worthless. So that's where I'm at. I think the what does this do, or however you phrased it, I think is the right thing and the right point. Where you said Seeking Alpha, I think our strength is the more opinionated stuff. We're a place for investors to come and share their ideas. And, so, and that's self-fulfilling because we obviously work here and have some influence, I guess, on what we publish. But I think that's a big part of it is the value. When you're pushing something out to somebody, that's where I probably want something new. Whether it is new research on Barnes & Noble that I wasn't aware of, if I'm following the company and aware of them generally, or a new idea. So if you're telling me, oh, actually, Barnes & Noble is a great dividend idea. They cover the dividend and they're going to continue to cover and the street is crazy. Like, that's where you're adding something new and so push that my way. At the same time, if I've come across Barnes & Noble independently somewhere else, that's where a research report will be more valuable to me to see what else is out there. And that's where I want to gather as much information as I can. I think that that would be, if I am running a portfolio and have the full time to kind of pull everything together, I would then find a research report more valuable as a way to make sure I'm not missing anything. And so I guess that's, I think it's well put what you said. I think we're better as a site at the opinionated stuff. 
or at the research on companies that are a little bit more under the radar than I think Barnes & Noble is. Yeah, or at least that's that's what we think. You know, who knows what other people actually believe. But, okay, so that's like, that's very theoretical. We're very abstract talking about the overall purpose of investment research and the overall different approaches. Let's get into what we're really here for, which is talking about Barnes & Noble, talking about sort of some of the factors that uh, West Peak looks at, and we'll just accept that this article is a starting point for our thought process and go from there and sort of walk through some of the, the highlights for what we thought was interesting, what, what we think the, the case might be, our own personal reactions to the article. So. I'll start with you. What were some of your notes about this article? What were some of your thoughts about uh, what you saw here? So I read this article, and as I was reading it, a comment, one of my favorite comments on Seeking Alpha came to mind. It's from one contributor on another contributor's article. It's on a retail company. I don't feel like citing the exact case, but it was one of these things where the idea was a long idea, and it was somewhat if not contrarian, somewhat value-trappy. And the commenter said, okay, let's take this and turn it upside down. Let me see how this could be a short idea. And, you know, they have a lot of inventory. Great, is that what I really want? And they're closing stores. Isn't that a bad sign, not a good sign? And the chairman owns a lot of shares. Great, but he owned a lot of shares a lot higher. Why do I... Why is that necessarily a good thing? And that was sort of what came to mind here for me, is that a lot of these things seem to me like really bad signs and hard for me to really see why I would want to be interested in Barnes & Noble as anything but a short. To me, this seemed like a really intriguing short idea as one of those sort of retail companies where the wheels are fallen off and it's just going to keep skidding. And, you know, you have 6% comparable sales drop, and I think the nine-month number was pretty large, too. Yeah, somewhere around 5 or 6%. Online sales was minus 10%, so they're not gaining any traction in that omni-channel way. Nook might have been an approach. I don't know. Do you, do you have a Kindle or do you have an e-reader? Do you have anything like that? I, have an, I use the iPad. I think my takeaway from that is just that uh, we, we thought when the Kindle came out or we thought when the Nook came out that this could be a way of locking consumers into your brand and uh, having a lot more opportunity just because the technology was new at the time during the debut. But, but I think what we found is that the digital devices actually are relatively commoditized and so is the business process of putting books into digital form and selling them. It's a much more crowded and competitive space, also one that Amazon does very well in, at least as far as I understand it. So where, where that looks like potentially a savior for Barnes & Noble, I think has turned out to just be sort of some dead weight on their business. And I wouldn't be discouraged if they continued along the path of getting out of, getting out of digital readers altogether. That would be bullish to me if they just sold off the Nook business. Right. Yeah, they could certainly close the book on Nook. Jeez, good grief. <laughs> the, 
But I would actually argue that I think even for a lot of people, not me, I also use the iPad to read websites at least, but I think the iPhone for a lot of people is what they use. So that's not going well. They're blowing money on dividends instead of hoarding it on the balance sheet. They're closing stores and they're maybe going to try. Stop there for a second. What are they supposed to do with the cash on the balance sheet? If you believe that the business is declining, then what are they supposed to do with it besides pay out in dividends? No, I, I, that's actually that. That's the that was my second reaction. Actually, was you know maybe they should just liquidate, like so, or or just milk this. You know, you're right. I think you're like, are they supposed to invest it in their idiosyncratic opportunities? Not if they're. Oh, I'm nailing you to the board, son. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, so you actually, so paying out in dividends, you, are you taking that back or what What do you think? I'll let you finish I, your point now, sorry. I, I think from the short, Kate, I, I think both ways, honestly. I think from the short idea, I would, ra- well, you know, obviously I would have to pay that as part of the borrow, I guess. I forget the term for that, the carry or whatever it is. But yeah, I, I think... I think having cash on the balance sheets is arguably gives me more optionality than not. But your your point is also taken. There may not be a lot of optionality if you're Barnes and Noble. They the article mentions okay maybe Barnes and Noble goes into this new concept of Barnes and Noble Kitchen. Yeah, I love that. I whether or not we agree, I like I think that I take the st- article as a starting point, and I find it interesting. Even though the article is a hold, it's not a long idea or a short idea, I come away thinking, wow, this would be a really interesting short to consider because it just doesn't seem like they have a lot of options or ways out. And I guess the the last line I wanted to quote was, and this is something that you get in a research report as compared to an opinionated piece, is just this casual throwaway. They go to the management team, check the box of here's the management team, as the fifth CEO in four years, Barnes & Noble newly named Chief Executive Demos Parneros. Fifth CEO in four years doesn't reassure me. And then I didn't notice until now, your next guy is the Chief Financial Officer, Alan W. Lindstrom, who had several director-level positions at Toys R Us. Also not the name I want dropped into my turnaround retail thesis right now. Not a great, okay. Fair enough. That's all so, fair. Never so you, you, you're going to take the other side here then, yeah? You're, you're not buying what I'm short-selling. I, okay, let's, yeah. I, when we were talking before the podcast, I, I said that my ears perked up a little bit when I read this. Again, you know, it's sort of what you take away from the research report. It's interesting that we had more or less opposite reactions. Here are the things that were interesting to me. First of all, although the author is a little bit on the fence, calls it a hold, gives a top-line price target that's a little bit below the current share price, if you look at the valuation models that the author provides towards the end of the article, you can see that on a comparable basis, compared to Hibbit Sports, Indigo Books, Vitamin Shop, the company is either cheap or close to cheap on EV EBITDA basis. And mm-hmm. then if you look at the D- DCF model, which you know we, we had a few questions about how uh, the author arrived at some of 
the inputs there. Nevertheless, I, I, I was, this made sense to me as a DCF model idea because you were looking, you have a high dividend yield, you have a kind of declining business, arguably, and the cash flows are going to, your projection to cash flows are going to strongly influence your investment. Uh, so, according to that model, there's upside here too. So, if we just take that as sort of a starting starting point, that okay, it's cheap on a relative basis and it's potentially cheap, even though we have some quibbles with the model on an absolute basis, let's take a look. So then we look and we see there's been buyout interest in the company. Mm -hmm. And at a, at a premium to, I think, where shares are trading now, certainly at a premium to where they were trading at the time, I think at nine, yeah. Yeah, $9 a share is the implied valuation of a late 2017 buyout offer from an activist investor. So someone who's a big player in the market sees some upside here, sees some value here. The problem was that Chairman Leonard Riggio didn't want to take the offer, unwilling to hand over his stake. He seems like kind of maybe... I don't know much about this story, but I got an impression from reading this article that uh, perhaps there's some there's some pride that's keeping keeping this comp that 11% stake that the chairman has you know invested in the company. Well, could I, I wanted to bring that up because I thought it was interesting. The he call he's quoted in the article as calling the offer not bona fide. Yeah, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Well, he said that it was because it was essentially the activists didn't hold a big stake in the company. And maybe even more important, they were going to layer on a lot of debt. And I just thought, as a step aside for a second, thinking about this from a corporate finance perspective rather than a, or from a business perspective, I don't, rather than as an investor, like, yeah, shares. If if that if that actually was bona fide and it was sold out for nine a share or whatever the offer was, shareholders would be happier. But if you're layering a lot of debt onto a company that is not not necessarily possessing a large a great future, I I I, I sort of had a small bit of oh that was nice of the chairman or not nice thoughtful of the chairman thinking about the future of his business and of his employees and of everything else. So I, I don't know. That was my very surface level take. Does that make sense to you at all? Like the idea of I'm not going to send my company, I'm not going to hand off my company so that I can cash out while they add on a ton of debt and who knows what happens in the future. Yeah. Okay. I, I get that, but uh, two things. So, we have, I don't see the offer as bona fide, and I don't think that the plan that the activist has is one that's going to be productive for the company or for shareholders. Which I'm reading into, by the way. I, I don't know. Yeah, we're both speculating here as to um, pretty much both the, the potential buyer and the potential seller's, the chairman's behavior here. We don't really have a lot of background on the story, but we're trying to game this out in terms of the dynamics that we do perceive. So, I don't know. Can can Barnes & Noble handle debt? Maybe let's just take that as a concrete thing first. So, you know, they, 
There's $64 million in long-term debt on a total asset base of $2.08 billion. So they don't have debt, financial debt, but the article does mention that they have short-term leases as the way that they uh, operate their stores. So I guess I would argue that potentially if that's an ongoing thing, then you would have to factor in their current liabilities as a part of their what they need to be a going concern. They need to rent out the space in order. They're a bookstore. They need space. So if they rent right. out the space, then I would put that on the balance sheet. Unless the plan is to buy stores with, to lever up and buy right. retail space, I doubt that's the plan. Anyway, they have $1.1 billion in total current liabilities. I imagine that I don't know whether those are lease payables or not because it doesn't say on this breakdown, but What gift card liabilities in there? They have what? A lot of gift card liabilities. They have gift card liabilities. Well, well, if you're going to the stores, maybe that's a source of value. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Deferred revenue, yeah. Yeah, That's right. Um, So, again, then they have a debt-to-equity ratio of somewhere around one, call it. I don't know. It doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem on its face to go one way or the other. That was a long walk for a drink of water, folks, but there you go. I, I think that you have some buyout interest. It was rated by a chairman who may have other motivations as not credible, but it was made. And so there's there's some potential value there. If it's an activist investor, then I think there's something to there's something to it. So we have so to, to kind of come back to what I like about this story, I like that it's potentially undervalued relative to peers. There's a lot of pessimism about this space overall. Barnes & Noble doesn't look like intrinsically a disaster to me. And so maybe there's an opportunity here. And the potential buyer on top of it is not the tipping point for me, but it is some a, a piece of evidence I'm factoring in. Here's the rest of the story. I like the restaurant idea. I like the that Barnes & Noble, to me, is actually a place where you go and hang out. Uh, you can argue one way or the other about this. I think of it kind of more as a library or community space. Now, do you want a for-profit business to be entering into the library space where they're competing with free uh, offerings? Not necessarily, but when I go on road trips, I stop at Barnes & Noble because they have internet. I buy a coffee and I see, look around and I see it has great space for children. There's all this educational stuff. There are these toys and they have a space where children can read. So you can bring your kids there on a trip to the mall and hang out. You probably buy something some percentage of the time you do that. A lot of seniors go there. A lot of people hold sort of informal business meetings or meet their friends there. Potentially, Barnes & Noble is actually more a Starbucks than it is a Barnes & Noble. And potentially, that's where I kind of, again, you take away whatever you take from the research report. If they can make that adjustment and go where the customers are actually perceiving value, shed, maybe they shrink the stores and optimize them for that. but. Mall space is probably not expensive right now, either to rent or to own. Maybe, <laughs> right. maybe they 
maybe one of the highest best uses of mall space right now is as a gathering place so that's my thesis basically if I were you're you get a high dividend yield and there's a potential a potential way to turn this thing around let me I think we can debate the financial analysis and I guess I think the business analysis here and the cultural analysis is more interesting to me and I think it's let me give it a financial gloss by saying Barnes Noble has been a contrarian thesis for a while, or a special situation, a values thesis for a while. I, as I was scrolling through our quote page, I saw a couple pro articles we had from 2015 from some of my favorite authors on Seeking Alpha, and that hasn't worked out really well. They had a, they had a spin, well, they had a spinoff at some point, but the spinoff also, it was of their college division. That hasn't done well. And it's one of those stories, I think sometimes a lot of value investors will go like flies towards a certain value trap and it then turns out sometimes they're right and it plays out. I noticed, for example, a story that played out really well was there was this random casino company that Carl Icahn was a major owner of, Tropicana, that just got sold or something, something big. I think they announced an acqu- they were acquired this week or something. And so these stories will play out positively, but sometimes you have a lot of people who are looking for the same things and miss the more obvious thing, which is that people don't like to buy books in stores as much anymore. But I'm going to use a framework that I think is maybe a cliche at this point, but I wanted to bring it up and hear what you think. There's In retail, they talk a lot about how it's either the high or the low. It's either the luxury retail that does well or the dollar store types that do well. And we talked about the Nook and the Kindle, too, and this idea of, well, does anybody really need an e-reader, or is it enough to just have a tablet or a phone, or I would prefer the real thing of a book. And I think of music, too, where vinyl has had a you know, drop in the bucket, but a mild resurgence, and streaming is the power player, and is anybody actually buying CDs right now? And that's what Barnes & Noble feels to me a little bit like because if you want the local, I totally agree with you on the value of community that I think you're, or maybe I'm inferring that that's what you're getting at and the value of a meeting space from a bookstore. But wouldn't that be a local bookstore? And so, like, wouldn't it be either you have the niche or the local or you have just go on Amazon? Like is Barn, Barnes & Noble was used to be the bad guy in that story, the same as Borders, used to be the bad guy in that story as far as eating the local store's lunch. But it seemed, it, I would posit that it might be that the local store is better suited to for the long haul because it has a more organic sense of community as compared to Barnes & Noble. Do you, you're welcome to just shoot that out of the water, but do you, buy that at all or do or do you how do you disagree about it no i think it's a good i think it's a good question i was you know when i was thinking of this and i saw their kind of barnes and noble kitchen concept i started doing all sorts of fanciful imaginations like oh maybe they get local restaurants to operate those and maybe they engage local musicians and local authors to replace we there are some successful businesses in 
uh, my town, Washington, D.C., that are built strongly around community and built strongly around books in particular. Uh, right. Boys and Poets is a very community-focused restaurant chain that has locations okay. in the D.C. area. And uh, Politics and Prose, which had formerly had a partnership with them, is a chain of bookstores in D.C., that are specifically geared towards community engagement and activism. And as far as I know, those are successful businesses. So to me, there is room in this space somewhere. Whether you can be credible as a local community-focused entity while still being a gigantic national franchise, I'm not sure, but I would be interested in exploring whether having the space and knowing how to use the space efficiently and effectively and having potentially just access to capital markets and other things that are can be advantages relative and a large asset base can be advantages relative to the sort of fragmented community focused market i i hear you i don't think it's totally obvious i do think that a lot of the suburban spaces where Barnes & Noble tends to congregate or tends to have stores are spaces that can benefit from this community space that are a little different from urban where it's more competitive and there are a lot more mom and pop shops just because of the population density. So I would say I wouldn't shoot your idea out of the water. I would say that there is, I wouldn't also rule this concept out for Barnes & Noble. Is that an investment thesis? No, because it's really mostly imaginary on my part, but it is something that, you know, again, this is about our reactions to the research report, and that was something that I thought was at least worth exploring. So, so let's go back to the, the report and the dividend, too, because that's a... So let's... Uh-huh. Like, okay, here it comes. Well, just, if you... Maybe that doesn't... Maybe that's not capital-intensive, but... If you're running, what does capital intensive mean to you? Because they kind of discuss that in the article. Does that does capital intensive just to me sort of means a, a low return on invested capital? Because it's a capital yeah. that we use a lot, but I don't know if I ever really quite. I think I have just my own personal definition. What's capital intensive, Daniel? I would, uh, yeah, I don't think I have a radically different definition. I would define it as ca- capital intensive requires. Oh, you have to do a lot to get something back from your money like you can't just at this point we talked about google and facebook for example at this point for them to just the money that they make over the next two or three years they don't really have to do a lot for like they've they've got to pay their servers and they've got there's some developers whose job it is to make sure the quality remains high or whatever else but you don't really need to market Google right now or to turn a widget or a pulley or whatever else to really keep right. it moving. And so I guess that that's how I would think about it. Okay, so how about how about BKS? Was Barnes & Noble capital intensive or not capital intensive? I so they said it wasn't. I or I think I would yeah. I would assume that you need I think you need to employ people and you need to have a human touch for it to work. And if you were to like come up with a super 
recommendation software and we were chatting about this in a different context yesterday or if you were like able to come up with this super recommendation tool or something else that would lose the charm of going to a bookstore and browsing and then being able to ask somebody for help and so I don't know I, I, I would assume it's fairly you're leasing the space maybe that keeps the capital expenditure lower I'll just throw some numbers at you I think capital intensivity is maximized if you're keeping money. <laughs> That's basically peak capital intensity. Asset turnover ratio of 2.06%. So revenue over total assets is 2.06%. That sounds capital intensive. That sounds very so, capital intensive. So, okay. I, so let's close the book on that. Boom. And get back to, sorry, get back to your point. We were kind of getting, winding around over the the use of this article and the purpose of this article from your point of view? Well, the use of the article and the, the recognizing a value trap, I guess, yeah. because that was, I said earlier, my, my first take reading this was to invert it and say this sounds like a really interesting short idea. But then I looked and I saw, while you pointed out that they're losing money, I guess on a net income basis, they are free cash flow positive even after you account for the dividend. So to some degree, you know, if you're Leonard Riggio and you have that 12% stake, like you're not burning cash. You're actually able to pay that dividend. And maybe that is the right play. But then you pointed out, well, you know, BK or Barnes Noble Kitchen or whatever else they might do. Like, how do you, let's say you were to take the next step and you were to research this company further and you were to, I won't send you to the boardroom like I did with so, yeah, a previous. <laughs> Even these companies got needs help, but that doesn't mean Mike Taylor is coming. So I'm not going to send you there. I don't. I'm not going to put you through that. But like, what would you be watching for, or what would you would your thesis be based on? I get the dividend, or would you be hoping that they shut the dividend down? Like, what would you? Your ears perked up. What are you? What are you hoping for if you were to look into this further? So they said that the the article says something like that they would they're looking at they're looking at decreasing the footprint, shrinking the stores in addition to getting rid of closing stores. I think you can picture you picture the big Barnes and Noble. It's gigantic. That's part of the appeal, but certainly there's a lot of rows and rows of bookshelves there and a lot of display that's really not very efficient in terms of the use of the space. I'm looking for shrunken stores. I'm looking for... Maybe it's tough to put a kitchen in, but is it tough to put a like neat little appetizer thing where you just have maybe a fryer and you have like an Applebee's but with good food? Uh, Maybe maybe something there. I don't think that has to be that that retooling of the store space has to be that difficult. And potentially you could just they you know, probably there's some quiznos that shut down that are next door to the Barnes and Noble that you can just move into. What I'm saying is that you repurposing the space, getting rid of the nook business and other distractions and executing on Barnes and Noble's true strength, which I think is actually as a gathering space and a community space. If that's the thesis, then I think you're the dividend. Maybe you can hold the dividend. You can just cut. You can just cut your rent expense down. 
that's probably you have fewer employees as a result of a smaller store space and Barnes and Noble becomes the cozy of the 2020s and is just a smaller somewhat bougie gathering space that has some sort of community niche appeal to it and maybe that's the source of the turnaround that's what I'm looking for does the dividend have to get cut for that maybe but maybe it doesn't honestly there's enough operating adjustments that you could make that could free up capital okay interesting I don't think um, I'm buying it, but I don't know if I'm buying it myself. Look, it's priced cheap relative to peers and on an absolute basis, even though the market is sort of in a different spot than it was a couple years ago. That's still something that makes it worth looking at. I wouldn't back in from there to a thesis, but like I said, my ears pricked up. There's something to, there's something to this. I would look at it. I'm curious about the answers to some of these questions. I've had... When, whenever we launch our spinoff series, I'm a bad investor, I, you mentioned that mall space is probably not very expensive right now, and I still own a small position of mall REITs, and is it? it's, not, it's not working well. Okay. <laughs> it's not working well, and yeah, I guess that's, I hear what you're saying, I just, that's, that's the challenge of value traps. Sometimes they work out, but like, there actually is value, but sometimes you just think, well, there's a lot of ifs and maybes. I'm not criticizing your thesis because I've been there myself and you could be, you certainly could be right about what the upside here is. I think it's just, there's a lot that needs to go right to change the facts from it's so easy to buy a book on Amazon or wherever else. And there's not a ton of, room for Barnes & Noble to maneuver around that. But, right. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I like, I love bookstores, I like what you're saying about community spaces, and I would love to see them figure it out. I think it's a good thing to have them, but that sort of opinion is dangerous to take into a investment analysis, even with an objective research report as your foundation. Right. Well, we talked a couple times about how to get started. I think that this is a clear example of even though the author's perspective is not particularly pointed, you certainly can get started from here. And we both got started from here. So that's that's a takeaway for me. For sure. I think, I think West Peak should be lauded for that. I think they did a nice job of presenting a breadth of material that is going to be valuable for anybody who is curious about Barnes & Noble in the relatively near to midterm future. And I just think there's critical reading, to come back to our pun, I guess, but critical reading is, I think, uh, allows the opportunity to get more value than just tell me what to do. And so I think that's, that's something there there is stuff here to pull out there is information that is worthwhile and so even if it's not ultimately going to be actionable either way for either of us and maybe maybe it becomes actionable in the future but I don't know but yeah so so I agree I, I liked I liked reading it I thought there's there's a lot to to work through in this article and so I enjoyed it for that. 
Okay. All right. Doesn't have to huge have a huge specific argument to work. Let's leave it there. Let's close the book. <laughs> okay. Let's get out of here. Daniel. Bye, Mike. Thanks for listening to Seeking Alpha's Behind the Idea. Please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Thank you to the people who have rated us so far on iTunes. If you have the time to rate or review the podcast there, it will help us make this better for you in the future. You can also email me or Mike at Daniel at SeekingAlpha.com or mtaylor at SeekingAlpha.com or tweet us at at DanielSeekingA or at mbrookstaylor with feedback, suggestions, or requests for future episodes. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on Behind the Idea.